you sound like death. Like, <laughs> like literally, you are like up to your waist in your grave right now. That's what I'm pretty sure is happening. Uh, fortunately for me, it sounds worse than it feels. It's mostly in my lungs. Uh, hey, Chris. Hey, Kara. How are you? <laughs> I sound a whole lot better than you today. Yeah, well, not every week can be uh, a glamorous time in sausage of science land. <laughs> Two guests on today. We have Dr. Lucedra McEricker and then Deborah Sloboda coming from what? McMaster University today to talk about the developmental origins of health and disease, right? Yeah, well, uh, from what it, it appears, and we've talked to them back and forth uh, for a variety of reasons over the last several months and, and read some papers they sent, but more specifically, what they are doing is looking at the implementation of public health programs or the taken DOHAD, the Development Origins of Health and Disease. And actually, they study how DOHAD theory and findings are being applied to improve maternal and child health outcomes. So how is the science being translated for the public? Or I guess more to the point, how it's not being translated to the public, as we'll probably find out. But I feel like this might be the first time reading through her stuff that I've really seen somebody addressing that, the direct application, like applied anthropology, like are we really doing what we should be doing? We have all this work showing the importance of Dohad, but are we actually translating it well enough to get out to the public and do some good? Well, I thought it was really interesting because my, my impression is some people are, and that's become increasingly a requirement of our grant proposals that we show the broader impacts and that there be plans for translation and applied stuff. But I, I have never seen any of those programs specifically using the same jargon that we use. So one of the questions that I have for them is the paper that they sent us, they're using terms like DOHAD to search for other programs. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, is that sort of jargon that we use are there efforts out there under other names? Yeah, prenatal, <laughs> prenatal health care and things like this. So um, when we work, when I was in American Samoa, we were working in maternal health clinics and, and we, we were specifically looking at things like how are public health initiatives getting information out to mothers and families. And so we never used a term like DOHAD. But it's great because it's doing what science should do, or at least looking at what, what science should do. And it's bring some direct benefits to the people that really fund it. That's important for. So I say, let's bring them on. Welcome to the Sausage of Science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you two wouldn't mind introducing yourselves, uh, since we've got two on one video and two separate voices. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I'm Lucader McCarricker, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow uh, at McMaster University, and I run the Mothers to Babies Project. And I'm Deb Sloboda. I'm a professor at McMaster University, and I'm the basic scientist now. <laughs> Did you say basic scientist? Yeah. What does that mean? I'm so basic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a... <laughs> Okay, so I'm a wet lab-based fetal physiologist, so I usually spend my time looking at gene expression, tissues, and 
molecular signaling pathways, et cetera, et cetera. So by basic, maybe we could say, I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to put words in your mouth. I'm just trying to, to translate because we often as anthropologists have to explain, yes, we are scientists. We don't work in labs most of the time, but we do these other things that are also science. So you're, you're a scientist in the way people have learned from television, scientists. <laughs> The yes, classic stereotype. Yeah, I have a lab coat and I have a lab and we have test tubes and <laughs> uh, well anyway, thank you both so much for being on. Uh, and maybe let's start with Lucedra, your origin story in the field, how you got into it, kind of maybe your educational trajectory and if it was linear or not, which seems like most of us is not. <laughs> not in my case well actually we're probably i can share two vignettes from my childhood which i think sort of foreshadow that maybe anthropology was going to be a good fit for me or that i was going to be a good fit for anthropology but then in between those instances and actually pursuing graduate studies in anthropology there was a lot of stumbling blindly around and doing all kinds of different things in between yeah um when i was in grade two or i guess south of the border down there i guess you call it second grade so Tell us where you are. Oh, we're in Canada. Okay. <laughs> and you're, Ontario, Canada. So you're Canadian? Yes. We're, okay. We're so you guys don't have second grade in Canada? Uh, we just call it grade two. <laughs> we skip second grade. We go right from first yeah. to third. Okay. Just, just, <laughs> we're translating for us. For us <laughs> yeah, second grade here. <laughs> so in, in second grade, I, uh, my grandfather used to love to tell the story that I came home. He picked me up from school one day, and I apparently used the exact words, I found my calling, um, I think I want to be an archaeologist, and I would like to specialize in Egyptology. What was going on in grade two at that time? Well, I was in part of this sort of like piloted enrichment program for, for students who had a little bit of giftedness, I guess, that gave some sort of enhanced curricula mm -hmm. so that, I, that a small group of us didn't get bored. And part of that, in that program, we did a unit on Egyptology. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of more of a STEM focus, like particularly on some questions around how do people, how do scientists know about the past? And then also, how are some of these ancient monuments constructed? And how can we apply that to, to building things, building small scale things in our, in our little classroom? That was just sort of a little window in. And then I got really, really excited about the mythology and the history. And uh, then I decided that that was my, that was my thing. I mean... Granted, probably a month later, I completely switched and decided that I wanted to be a professional golfer in the LPGA. So I can take that Egyptology story with a grain of salt. So Sadra so post PGA. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> um, so well, fast forward many years, I spent some time right after high school traveling around, and then I wanted to do a little bit of post-secondary, mostly because I just had some scholarship money to use up. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I kind of thought maybe I wanted to study political science. Um, but I was late registering because I'd been bumming around being a traveling. And uh, so the, all of the political science class, intro political science classes were full. So I signed up for intro to anthropology and then... <laughs> And then loved it, found out that that's actually where uh, the home of archaeology and uh, some other things that I was interested in. Anthropology is like a hole people fall into. Yeah. They get stuck <laughs> and they kind of like the hole. It makes it sound so negative, but I do agree. Deb, how about you? What's your origin story? I never thought about science, actually. <laughs> um, certainly not in grade school. 
and not in high school really either. I um, I liked biology, I guess, later in high school, but that was about it. I really, really sucked at all the core courses. And so as a result, my parents said, you should just be a French teacher. <laughs> That's the fallback in Canada? Is that the fallback in Canada to just be a French teacher? I should clarify though. I was in I was in a French immersion program, which what that means here is that you um, you'll apply to go to this program. All of your courses are taken in French, mm -hmm. except for English, of course. <laughs> so anyways, I began French immersion in grade seven. So right from middle school, all through high school, right up until the last year of high school, everything is taught in French, like science, geography, history, it's all, you speak French. So they thought, oh, you're doing so well. So mm -hmm. you should just go to French. So that's what I did. I went and I applied my first year. I was in an arts degree, taking French as a major. Uh, psych as a minor, and I hated it. Huh. Both or just the major? Oh, I actually liked the French, but I hated the psych. Okay. But I, I took a random elective because I actually did like bio, and and then went well, that's it. I'm transferring, so I transferred from the faculty of arts to the faculty of science. I had to like retake all those terrible prerequisites in university. <laughs> Awful. I never ever want to go back. <laughs> I would never want to do that again. Um, yeah, and I ended up graduating with a, a major in human bio and a major in French. But now I'm also curious because I find this so wonderful that we have an anthropologist on one side of the room and then we have a bench scientist on the other side of the room here. So what is the origin story of you two coming together to do this kind of work? I think it's better if you take that. Yeah. Uh, so um, my fundamental science, shall I call it that? A view on what what I have been doing is that we study. I'm a I'm a fetal physiologist, so a reproductive biologist, and I study the relationship between the mother, the fetus, and the placenta, and then how that relationship over the course of pregnancy is modified by any kinds of factors, usually adverse factors, mm -hmm. and how that adversity shapes and molds the development of the fetus and results potentially in an increase in disease risk later in life and diseases that we used to think were lifestyle associated but we now know actually have their origins really early in life. So, so that's what I have spent the majority of my career doing and in investigating the, the molecules and the signaling pathways. Uh, but ultimately, sorry? In humans or did you use a model organism? Uh, I have used many model organisms. Mm -hmm. um, so we started in sheep. That's where all of the fundamental fetal physiology is. It's all been done in sheep. Um, and then I went and moved to rodents, so to rats. And now we use mice and we also use uh, samples that we collect, uh, clinical samples that we collect. So mm -hmm. and blood from mothers and things like that. So I've done the whole gamut. Um, but all guinea pigs as well. Yes. <laughs> Um, so, but basically, as I tell my students, is I'm not, I'm not interested in improving outcomes for sheep, guinea pigs, and rats. Uh, I'm interested in improving outcome in women. So uh, we, we wrote a rather complex research proposal about um, three and a half, four years ago, 
put together a team to take some of the bench top science and translate it into what we could do for women in real time. And not just, you know, clinic, clinical, clinical trials, really about how we can translate information to the general public to improve outcomes for the general, you know, public, rather than focusing on individuals who end up in hospital. Um, and because of that uh, proposal, which got funded, I uh, needed somebody that knew something <laughs> about <laughs> about particularly uh, disadvantaged and um, disadvantaged and women. And why did I how did I get in touch with Because I knew her one of my supervisor, one of the co-supervisor. Yeah. yeah. And she said, Oh, I have somebody that's about graduate who's amazing. And she's done this work on women and so let me I want to jump ahead a little bit um, and read the title of the paper that you sent. I know you've got some stuff in the works, but you sent us a paper called um, Translating the Developmental Origins of Health and Disease Concept to Improve the Nutritional Environment for Our Next Generations, a Call for a Reflexive Positive multi-level approach. And so the, the theoretical uh, model that you're talking about is the DOHAD model, the developmental origins of health and disease. And one of the questions that I had was based on my experience from when I was like 10, right? So again, here's the ugly American experience with Canada. I went to Ontario when I was 10 and Ontario was so, I remember the Pepsi cans were different and clean and I made a lamp out of one. But otherwise, it's a really <laughs> limited model. So can you tell us about your project, what you're doing in Canada, and what the need is there? Well, that's a great question. Um, so I don't know if we, I, I think we probably can't speak to Canada as a whole, although some of the problems, some of the issues that we're finding in the Mothers and Babies study certainly are nationally relevant, potentially. But this project, so the Mothers to Babies project, is really, it's, it's meant to be an intervention study. So we're We've spent the last couple of years developing relationships with community health workers, as well as with pregnant women, public health administrators around the city of Hamilton to understand how women in Hamilton, pregnant people experience pregnancy in the city. And we've done that through a couple of different, through sort of a quantitative survey tool that we developed, as well as um, I've been running focus group interviews with with both frontline care workers and with pregnant women or pregnant people. And through that, really, to, to be honest, Chris, I, I was a little bit surprised coming to the city because I hadn't lived in Hamilton before um, joining this project. Um, and I was, pretty, I was pretty surprised by the level of health inequities that, are, that Hamilton is dealing with. They're staggering. In 2012, there was collaboration between uh, the press uh, the local newspaper called The Spectator and the Public Health Office. Yeah, it was yeah. more, it was uh, on the back of an investigative mm -hmm. journalist who was interested mm -hmm. in understanding how equities across Hamilton and what fueled the equities and what things went along with that. And and she did a lot of work. I can't, I off the top of my head, can't remember his name. But I guess the, the, the main academic that was involved in that was Pat Luca. Yes. Um, I'll look up him. In any case, uh, well, well, Deb's looking that up. I can say that that work showed 
to policymakers and also the public that there's these staggering inequities where in the richest neighborhoods in Hamilton, um, people are living to, a, a, can expect to live to close to 90, 88, and only 68 in, in the poorest neighborhoods. Whoa. Yeah, so there are, and there, there are a lot of people in Hamilton living below the poverty line and that's growing. Um, and that's largely because um, I guess in much like in a lot of sort of Rust Belt cities and states in the U.S., um, there was a big manufacturing sector here. That was where a, a lot of people made their their livings. But manufacturing really sort of deteriorated in the, the late 20th century, and so that's left a lot of people without stable employment, without sort of solid and without access to middle class lifestyles. And at the same time, the cost of living has really been increasing the last in the last decade or two. Um, largely because people from Toronto, which is nearby, have been more and more buying property in, in Hamilton and commuting from there, and that's driving up the property values so that people that live here uh, can no longer afford to live here. So I grew up in this area, not in Hamilton, but in the southern Ontario area, and Hamilton was always called the blue collar to make all its money on steel. Two very, very huge steel plants right on the water, right on our beautiful Lake Ontario. And uh, it always had a reputation for most of its uh, population working uh, in the steel mill. You, you wouldn't have to look very far to find many generations of individuals in one family working in, uh, in a steel plant. And there was a big boom, right? In, in the 1980s, there was lots of money. They were selling lots of cars. And, and many people who worked their entire life, you know, even on the line, at, at the steel plants, would bought large three-story brick right in downtown Hamilton. Beautiful, very beautiful areas, um, mm. historical places as well. Um, and then when the crash happened, of course, none of that could be maintained anymore. And then the entire families, you know, lost pensions, they lost all sorts, and then that resulted in quite a bit of poverty uh, mm. in areas because a lot of them would go right from high school right into steel plants. So. There was no other recourse, no other jobs available um, with relatively uh, modest educations. And importantly, that's really reflected also in the in the prenatal nutrition landscape or the prenatal health landscape. So, um, in that same in that same study called Code Red um, from 2012, we'd see all these massive differences in life expectancy. But we also see massive differences in birth weights and other markers of birth outcomes. If maybe you could more very specifically define the objectives of mothers to babies and what you hope that you get out of it research-wise as well as for the community. So I guess I have a couple of objectives that I think our, our main objectives uh, research-wise are, as I already sort of suggested, I think that uh, we just we want to understand the pregnancy health experiences. And so what kinds of what kinds of challenges are pregnant women and pregnant people in Hamilton facing? What kinds of tools do they already have at their disposal to try to overcome some of those challenges and barriers? And we're trying to get at that in a couple of different ways. But then in a bigger picture sense, as Deb has already suggested, I mean, we want to support pregnant people to to live well and to have, and ultimately to have for that to have not only really positive impacts on their health, mm -hmm. um, but then on the long term health of their of their developing babies. Do you have like a timeline of implementation? Oh, that's well, Sorry. Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. So without so the grant, like the proposal itself in the study, is really. Um, 
is an information gathering and consultation mm. project. So really this project is about forming a platform by which we co-create an intervention. So our, our main objective, I guess, is to gather enough information in order to have the tools to co-create an intervention with the women and the public public health care workers and then stage two which we're now trying to get funding for take what co-created intervention you get out of all this consultation and implement there have been like a number of suggestions right as as lucedra you know has done focus groups we've done uh, like a stakeholder meeting where we presented some survey data and asked the women and and public health care workers, what they think is needed and how that could fit into it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we have basic an itemized list of things that people would like to see. And I think at this stage, or at this stage, at the next stage, what we need to do is then meet with them, form a committee that really involves both knowledge users, so public health, some of the stakeholders, some of the pregnant women, and the researchers come to the table together and see how we can form something that works for everyone across the table and then implement it in that fashion. So really the the timeline is another 18 months of engagement, um, more analyses of what information we have about these women in, in Hamilton because, I mean, not even public health knows really. Then what we're doing is seeking more funding to actually go out and take what we now know Potentially, so some of the some of the suggestions were uh, first off, we need better integrated services across the mm-hmm. state. So when a when a woman goes to see her family doc, dietitian, social worker, social worker, that those those individuals are communicated, so she gets a continuous circle of care. Mm-hmm. The other thing is incorporating extended family and partners. Into mm-hmm. We'd actually like to do kind of, I called it in a recent proposal, fathers-to-be or, mm. uh, you know, uh, partners incorporating them. What are their barriers for supporting uh, pregnant women, trying to get some more information on those scenarios, and then work with public health to try and use the existing services, because we can't obviously generate resources for public health, particularly right now in Ontario, because right now our provincial government is cutting not implementing. So how do we use the existing services to extend them to make sure that they reach disadvantaged women and women that need it the most? Um, we're right now, I guess, in the consultation phase, try and form something that works for everybody. If you don't mind, I, I want to sort of combine a couple of the questions that I sent you and dig down a little deeper on, on what you have found. So you make distinctions between pregnancy knowledge and DOHAD knowledge. And then you point out some differences that you found with regard to socio-demographic variables in your sample. I wonder if you could talk about some of those distinctions. So for the purposes of some of the uh, survey analyses that we've been doing, we wanted to, well, okay, I should back up a little bit. We were really interested in understanding if pregnant women in Hamilton know anything about the DOHAD perspective, developmental or the health and disease perspective, because we had the intuition as well, which is also at least somewhat supported empirically, that having some familiarity with this concept might actually be somewhat of a motivator to make some very minor lifestyle changes, mm. environment changes during pregnancy. 
And so we wanted to know if intuition is correct, if women actually, if there are any women that actually have this knowledge and, um, and what, are they, what are they doing with that? Does that have any impact on their behavior? Can you give me an example of some of the things that they would know that would be doe head knowledge? Yeah, so the questions, some, I'll give you just one statement that we use to measure this. What I eat during pregnancy will affect uh, my child's risk of developing type 2 diabetes as an adult. So there's an important <laughs> yeah. distinction between understanding that what you do and what you eat during pregnancy impacts your baby versus what you eat and what you do during pregnancy impacts your children's risk of obesity when they're adults, mm -hmm. right? Because we always attribute type 2 diabetes and obesity to lifestyle. So inherently, people stop talking about their progeny's health when they reach, what, 16, 17, 18, right? Mm -hmm. And then they're done. So what I, what I do beforehand uh, impacts them until, well, as, as long as they're children, maybe, maybe adolescence. But beyond that, there are, they make their own decisions. That mm -hmm. They're in control whether or not they're going to be healthy. And in fact... I didn't mean to cut you off. I wanted you to explain that because I think that will be important to all of our listeners mm -hmm. that is commonly not well or at all understood. Yeah. For example, I have a number of undergrads who now listen to this. They will not know really what you mean. So uh, if you can explain sure. it at a nice basic level. Well, they're, so, the, so based on quite a number of historical data sets, the theory rests upon a foundation that as a developing organism grows and receives information as it develops, so that could be mammals, obviously, as we are mammals, but that could equally be things that lay eggs. There's lots of evidence of this in the animal literature, that the developing organism will make adaptations based on information that it receives from, let's say, its mother at this point, because we'll talk about mammals, and that it makes these adaptations not for immediate survival, but it makes these adaptations for future survival, so that it can increase reproductive fitness, right, later in life. Because immediate survival is important. I mean, being alive <laughs> is better than being dead. But once you get there, you have to ensure that you have everything in place <clears throat> to actually reproduce right and have successful reproductive fitness, or high reproductive fitness so so the concept rests upon that now we as humans of course modify all sorts of things in our environment we control reproductive fitness a lot <laughs> um, not all of it but a lot of it and so the developmental origins of health and disease dictates that your early life environment and we can even put germ cells in that camp so your environment extends far earlier than we ever thought it did germ cells blastocysts embryo fetus child and then that lays a program or a foundation of adaptations that then interact with the postnatal environment so you either have an increased or a decreased risk of developing obesity depending on what you eat postnatally and a lot of it has animal models where we can control everything we can mm -hmm. control genetics we can control what they eat what they do and the classic example is that uh, either undernourishing or over feeding let's say pregnant rodents during pregnancy 
results in offspring that have metabolic complications regardless of what, like, what you feed them. So even if they eat the same food as their control counterparts, an animal that it was born to an adverse early life environment will end up with metabolic dysfunction. Beautiful. <laughs> Great. Thank you. No head knowledge oh, versus okay. pregnancy knowledge. Right. Humans. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So we so we started from the from the assumption that probably most people wouldn't necessarily have that that understanding that what their their health status during pregnancy would have these not just immediate consequences for how their their their, their infant turns out but how their child develops and then ultimately their child's health risks as an adult would be so we have, because this is something that's has been somewhat disseminated, but it's not necessarily super intuitive and it's not widely disseminated. And we wanted to get a sense of how many sort of regular people who are not necessarily health professionals, not scientists, um, had a, a sense of that this, that what they, how they live during pregnancy would have these long-term impacts. And then we also wanted to, we also had the intuition that maybe that, that would be quite different from the other kinds of information about pregnancy health that they were getting, sort of the standard messaging from, in, particularly from Health Canada, which gives recommendations about what to eat and how to live and activity patterns during pregnancy, but doesn't necessarily offer an explanation as to why. So we developed these two different sets of knowledge scales to measure this, this idea of familiarity with DOHAD or understanding of DOHAD and just familiarity with general pregnancy health guidelines about how to live during pregnancy. And your original question, Chris, Chris, I think was about, were there differences in who had what kind of knowledge? Yeah, so one of the, the findings that jumped out at me was higher status nulliparous, and I just wanted to say that word, women without children scored best in DOHAD knowledge. Yeah. I don't understand. I mean, I kind of do, but I, I'm curious what, what you think that represents. Well, I, I don't think we were super surprised that to the extent that anyone has any DOHA knowledge, any sort of regular, anyone from the regular public has any DOHA knowledge, we, we kind of figured that that would be mostly concentrated among people who with more education and our, right. our uh, socio-demographic status variable weighted education fairly heavily. Yeah. And because if you have more education and more health literacy, then it's easier to sort of take in the idea if you've been exposed to it once or twice, but... Yeah, but I do find it curious that women with no children score better. Is that an, is that simply confounded with age because of the way it's been rolled out? Because well, we know much more after having kids than before having them. Well, that was I think that's the misconception. No, that's the misconception. We we expected that. We expected exactly what you you both expected, which was that that women with more childbearing experience would have sort of would have higher DOHA knowledge, but no, we controlled for age statistically, we controlled for education statistically, and we still found that having, that being Paris was, uh, or having fewer children, was a predictor of having relatively high DOHA knowledge. And so we went to bits of the literature afterwards, and we backed out an explanation, and we think it probably has to do, uh, there's, there's probably a couple of factors, and one is that Women who are pregnant for the first time, people who are pregnant for the first time are probably more likely to seek out up-to-date knowledge and, and probably also more likely to sort of be particularly receptive to that knowledge because they have more 
they have more time and mental bandwidth than women who are looking after a bunch of older, older kids. Um, and then an, another factor seems to be that here and elsewhere, there are just, there are fewer resources from offered by health professionals for uh, women with previous childbearing experience. There's just less prenatal teaching offered. There's less, um, there's, there's, you get handed less things. So you could, you could imagine that with resources being scarce to begin with, that the, and it, this makes sense that public health would concentrate on individuals that have no prior knowledge. Yeah. As in no prior experience. So you could easily imagine a scenario where a woman may approach her family doctor, GP, and say, oh, here I am, and the doctor says you're pregnant, and this is baby number three, how are you feeling? I'm good. Okay, well, you're good. You know what you're doing. You've done it twice before, and your two other children are very healthy, and I see them as well, and they're growing well, and they're going to school, and everything's fine. Yep. And then that's how, right? And that's how it ends. And I'm not suggesting that that's wrong. It's not wrong. But up-to-date information does occur, right? And there's probably not enough time nor resource for either health professionals or for the women having their third or fourth baby. So I actually have a question on top of that because you brought it up. Sorry, <laughs> I saw Lucidra was about to say something. What's actually the level of knowledge among medical practitioners of DOHAD? We didn't measure it. Mm -hmm. We didn't measure it with our questionnaire. Yeah. We've talked to people about this. And what we found is really mixed. Um, just, mm -hmm. I mean, of course, we don't have a representative sample, but... We've, we've talked to some midwives who've said, I have no idea what you're talking about. This is mm. total news to me. And others who are like, yeah, I integrate that into my teaching and my one-on-one -on -one counseling all the time. Mm. Um, same with public health nurses and registered dietitians. A lot of them seem to have a little, a little bit of familiarity, they've, but then they don't know sort of the whole um, range of effects that early life exposures can have on later life health. There's a, there's a couple of papers, one of which is coming, if it hasn't been published, it's on its way, that I know of that they did the, did kind of the, not the same sort of survey we did, uh, I think it was less form, um, formal, uh, but they, they found similar things that, you know, generally healthcare professionals don't have a solid understanding. I mean, it makes sense to them. Like, mm -hmm. It, right that it absolutely makes sense but whether or not it's actually in their practice yeah if it actually gets translated into the care yeah uh, and we did get there's a little bit of pushback i guess about oh. time right how much time like do i have in mm -hmm. to see to especially from gps right cool yeah well we're we're actually almost out of time so we we always like to wrap up with a fun question and since you study in a lot of ways, family balance and stuff. What do you all do to maintain balance in your, no doubt, busy lives? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, well, I have lots of interests outside of, outside of anthropology and outside of the Mothers to Babies study, um, although I'm not sure I'm doing the best job of reading as much fiction as I would ideally like or playing my guitar or my bass as often as, or my ukulele as often nice. as. But it, I do get out and I, I do get my musical instruments down at least on the weekends and play with my play music with my daughter pretty pretty often. And I just finished just finished reading Marlene Zutz's book called Paleo Fantasy, 
Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. I don't know if you guys have read it. Mm -hmm. um, it came out years ago, but I finally, yeah. it's been on my to read list for forever. And I can highly recommend it. It's a really, for listeners, it's a sort of great synopsis overview that's funny and engaging of the problems with following a paleo inspired lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Taking it off my shelf to actually read now. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Deb? What's your uh, balance consist of? Yeah, I, I'm going to start the question by saying I do not believe in balance. There is no balance. I don't try and balance. Um, integrate uh, my life together. This does not work. That's the major thing. Uh, this is I have I have no need for work-life balance because this is my life. It is not my work. I love doing this. This is fun. <laughs> Actually, you know. So uh, I do read books that have nothing to do with what I do. Uh, and it used to be uh, my claim to fame was everywhere I traveled. I've done it lately, but everywhere I traveled, uh, every time I got on an airplane, I bought a Cosmopolitan magazine. <laughs> that was the only thing that I was allowed to read on the airplane. So I did get some interesting comments while I sat on the airplane reading my Cosmo when the guy beside me was saying, so what do you do? And I say, I'm a professor in biochemistry. <laughs> <laughs> my best days are like sitting on the beach reading a paper. Uh, I like that. I excites me. I read other books. What I read, you read the break. I read the break. Yeah. Who was um, who's the author of the break? That was a really amazing book. I don't remember her name. Remember the in, in your defense, I'll say this has almost become a trick question because most yeah. of our anthropology interviewees seem to like what they do and yeah. they all apologize <laughs> because they're like, I'm reading academic stuff for fun too. Two, I always tell my students that I was inspired by Paul Farmer, the famous medical anthropologist whose favorite thing to read is People Magazine, because that is also my favorite magazine to read. <laughs> yeah. So, it's all so, good. No one could justify it in any way. No, no apology. No, I, I don't apologize for loving what I do. I will apologize for the fact that I am one of the lucky few that gets to do what I do. There's lots of people that have to go to work and earn a paycheck and hate what they do. So, we have the supreme privilege of going to work every day and loving it so well put uh so we always like to end with uh how can people get a hold of you either through websites social media email whatever you're willing to share your lab is on twitter yeah we have a twitter our twitter handle for the lab is at sloboda underscore lab but you can probably type it into sloboda my last name on twitter the mothers yeah. to baby studies on our twitter handle is at mtv study yeah, M2B is is uh, is on Twitter. We're, we're on Facebook as well. Google will probably find us. Great. Are you looking for grad students? It's always uh, good. We've got young people listening. So yeah, if we get if we get this next grant. Yeah, if we get this next grant, we're really we really 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 want a health policy person. I have a few of those in my back pocket for you. We'll talk. <laughs> Chris, well, how can people get a hold of you? Oh yeah, that's right. I am at Chris <laughs> underscore L-Y. We've been the Sausage and of Science. What about you, Kara? I am at Kara Akabak. Uh, thank you both so much for being on the Sausage of Science today. Nice. Pleasure. Thanks for having us.